0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're almost done in our series through the armor of God. And today we're going to be talking about the shield of faith. And as Christians, uh, faith is something that we talk about all the time. I have faith in Jesus. Uh, and then we, we say if you have faith, you can move mountains because it's in the word of God. But many people think uh, that faith is to be used like a special power that gets things done. Like if I have enough faith. I can get things done in my life and in the lives of others. And, you know, I remember as a kid thinking of faith this way, that if I believed hard enough about something, I could make it happen. And so I remember I lived, at a, I lived at a summer camp, Camp Crestview, and we had a swimming pool. And one day I went out to the swimming pool, and my, we were all kind of playing in the swimming pool. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to walk on this pool today. And so anybody, anybody else ever tried this before? You never try. I'm the only one? All right, that's fine. And I remember coming up to the edge of the swimming pool and just thinking to myself, okay, if I believe enough, if I have enough faith, I can walk on this water just like Jesus did. And I took a step out onto the pool. And guess what? I fell right into the pool. And anybody ever seen the movie Hook with Robin Williams? Do you remember the scene where he's trying to learn how to fly again? He's trying to remember what it takes to fly. And so what does he do? He goes to a high place, and he's just going, happy thoughts, happy thoughts, happy thoughts. And he goes, I can! And he jumps off and, bam, lands flat on his face. This is oftentimes how we think of faith. It's it's this intellectual exercise that we have to, like... We have to focus our energy enough and have that faith. And when Jesus talks about having faith the size of a mustard seed, we go, man, it must take a lot of energy and focus to produce this much faith, right? Faith is hard. And we think to ourselves, faith is difficult to understand. It's hard to wrap our minds around. And Hebrews tells us that faith, and as a definition for us in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, says faith is being, excuse me, not Hebrews 11, I'm all mixed up. It says that faith is being sure of what is hoped for and confident of things unseen. And here in Ephesians, Paul describes faith as a shield, as something that guards you from the flaming darts of the enemy. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read this verse 10 like we've been doing every week for the past four or five weeks. It says this. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know, Paul in Ephesians 6 is not saying that faith has some remarkable defensive power against Satan in and of itself. All right? Rather, he's saying that faith protects us from Satan's attacks because of what faith enables us to take hold of. Your faith enables you to take hold of something. And that something is the power and protection of God himself. That uh, in, in the Old Testament, it becomes clear when you look at the usage of the shield imagery in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament... It's not faith but God who's repeatedly described as a shield. That God himself is our shield. He is our protector. He is our fortress and faith enables us to take hold of the power and presence of God himself. Listen to some of these scriptures in the Old Testament. Genesis 15:1 the Lord tells Abraham, "I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great." Proverbs 35 says, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalms 3.3, David says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 28.7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Psalm 119, uh, verses 114 says, you are my hiding place and my shield. God himself is our shield. He is our refuge. He is our hiding place in the day of difficulty. His faithfulness will keep us safe when we are being shot at by arrows, by attacks from the enemy. But if the Old Testament tells us that God is our shield, why does Paul say that faith is our shield? Faith, like I said before, is the means by which we flee to God for refuge. It's it's the means by which we come to God, by which we approach him. And it's how we cling to God and find him Uh, Find in him the comfort and protection in times of difficulty and distress. Let uh, Let me create this illustration for you. Imagine that you have fallen into the sea, and you are drowning. You're stranded in the middle of the ocean, and you're drowning. You can't swim, and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. But then somebody, out of nowhere, throws you a rope. This rope lands right next to you, and you grab hold of that rope, so you can be pulled to safety, but in order to be saved, there are several things that are necessary, right? In order to be saved in this sea from drowning, there's a several things that must happen in order for you to be saved. First, you need to believe in the existence of the rope, that it's there. You're not just dreaming it, right? It's not a figment of your imagination. The rope is there. It's, it's, it, it's available for you to grab, and you have to believe that there's somebody at the other end of it, Right? <laughs> There's somebody at the other end of this rope. who's t- And if there is no rope, there's nothing to grab. If there's no one at the other end of the rope, there would be equally no point in grabbing the rope, right? But it's not even enough. It's not even enough to believe in the existence of, th- of this person at the end of the rope. You also need to be convinced that the person at the other end wants to help you and is strong enough to save you and is able to pull you in that that person at the other side has a desire to save you. You can believe all of these things and still drown if you don't actually grab the rope. You have to grab the rope. And if all of your beliefs, your belief in the rope, your beliefs at somebody at the other end that they're willing to save me, if all of your beliefs didn't cause you to take the necessary action... Then it's not gonna do you any good. Your faith leads you to take action and placing your trust in God. It places your trust in God. You place your life in God's hands. And so today we're gonna talk about faith. And we're gonna talk about three different kinds of faith that we read in the Gospels. I love that Jesus responds to all different levels of faith, but he does respond especially to great measures of faith. But we're going to talk about different levels or different measures of faith that people in the Bible had for a little bit. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 21. Here's the backstory: story. A father brings his son to Jesus who has been demon-possessed. And he tells Jesus that my my son throws himself into the fire and he hurts himself. And he's been like this forever. And I brought my child to your disciples and they couldn't cast out this demon. So the father brings the son to Jesus. And in verse 21, it says this. says, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this from childhood? He answered it is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him but if you can do anything take pity on us and help us if you can jesus said everything is possible for the one who believes immediately the boy's father exclaimed i do believe help me overcome my unbelief i'm so grateful that stories like this are in the bible Because there are so many times where I come to the Lord, I say, God, I believe that your word is true, but I need your help to overcome all this doubt that I have, all this unbelief that I have. What do we do with our doubt? And immediately, let's see, verse 25, when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can come only by prayer. And other translations say prayer and fasting. I love this story because... There's so many moments in my life where I go, this was me, Jesus. I believe you, and I believe you can do this. But I keep looking at the circumstances in my life, and I'm beginning to despair. Help me to overcome my unbelief. I'm not the only one who's experienced this before, am I? See, Jesus was surrounded by people with little faith. His disciples and this father had very little faith. This father and the disciples had, if you can faith. But if you can, you can do this. If you can faith. And how did Jesus respond to if you can faith? He said, everything is possible for one who believes. And the man cries out to Jesus with number one, a declaration of what little faith he does have. And number two, a prayer asking Jesus to provide help for the doubt that still exists in his heart and his mind. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus immediately responds to this man's prayer by casting out the evil spirit from the boy. Despite the man's little faith, Jesus still answers to this man's request for his son. What is Jesus doing here? He's giving him a reason not to doubt him. In the future. He's doing a miracle in his boy's life so that from now on, when the father has an issue, he's going to remember this story and remember what Jesus did for him. Jesus, if you did it there, you can do it again. Jesus has given this man a reason not to doubt him anymore. And you know, recently I've seen many people treat doubt like a virtue. When we talk about deconstruction and it's okay, like, you know, people, and and this is true, that that I, I believe that every believer goes through a season in their life where they begin to ask the really good questions they begin to ask god do you really love me god are you really there do you god are you really my provider are you and we begin to go through these seasons of doubt we wrestle through these seasons and i believe that happens in the life of every believer but doubt is not a virtue doubt is not a good thing i hear people tell others that it's a healthy part of following jesus And that it's necessary to question God's word in order to discover the truth. But let me be clear. There is grace for doubt, as we just read in this story. But doubt is not a virtue. It is in conflict with faith. Doubt is in conflict with faith. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask... You must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. What is Jesus saying? He's like, you can't serve two masters. If the doctor is telling you a diagnosis, you can't put your faith in that diagnosis and still put your faith in the healing power of Jesus. You have to pick one. Which one do you believe? Which power is stronger? Which power is greater? And, and, and Jesus is saying, I want to move you into a place where you start believing my word more than you believe what the world around you says. Matthew 18, 2 says, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And little children, they have this honest and humble trust in their parents don't they? Imagine that a father tells his child not to drink the chemicals under the kitchen sink. Right? And someone else comes along and says, it's okay to doubt your father and his intentions towards you. It's a normal part of life. It's fine. You can just doubt what your father... If that doubt is left unaddressed for long enough, it's going to lead to the child harming himself. The devil uses lies to create doubt in our minds That leads to separation from God, where we begin to doubt God's goodness towards us, his love for us, his power to save us. And those are in conflict with faith. The second story is in Matthew chapter 8. Turn with me to the the previous book. We were in Mark. Just go one book back. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. This is a story of Jesus healing a man from leprosy. So the first story we had, if you can faith, right? Here's the second story. This is, if you're willing faith. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See, he believed that he could do it, that he had the power to do it. He just wasn't sure if he wanted to do it, if he was willing to do it. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. He said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the, to, to the priests, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This leper had a little bit more faith than the previous father. He said, you can make me clean. I'm just not sure if you're willing or if you want to. Now, to understand the full significance of this moment in Scripture, we have to realize uh, what ancient people thought about leprosy. We have to take a step back in time. We don't have many lepers roaming roaming the streets today in in our community, but in ancient times, this was a big deal. It was a problem. Leprosy was a terrible infectious skin disease that involved the degeneration of skin tissue and caused the body to be disfigured and sometimes parts of the body would rot away and physically fall off. It was terrible. it was considered a curse from God. Miriam was stricken with leprosy for her rebellion against Moses in numbers chapter 12 and elisha's Elisha, uh, excuse me elisha's servant Gehazi was stricken for his greed in 2 King's Five. David's curse on Joab's descendants included leprosy in 2 Samuel 3. King King Uzziah was stricken with leprosy because he presumptuously offered incense in the temple in 2 Chronicles 26. See, leprosy was about as bad as it could possibly get. It was incurable, and it was deadly. It was the equivalent of modern-day cancer, except that leprosy was much more evident, and it was much more physical and ugly Leprosy was considered kind of this this living death with many sweeping implications. And one was declared a leper after tests were performed, uh, according to Leviticus chapter 13. And once declared a a leper by a priest. Once a priest declared that you were a leper, the leper was cut off from society completely. And they had to follow these, these things. Once they were declared a leper. Number one, they had to display marks of mourning as if for the dead. Thus, to touch a leper was to defile yourself because you can't touch anything that's dead. And so a leper had to display marks of mourning as if he was already dead. Number two, he had to tear his clothes, uncover his head, and cover his lips. And when someone, number three, when someone drew near to him, he must call out, unclean, unclean. He had to publicly humiliate himself. And say, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. And number four, he had to remain outside of the camp. And naturally, the leper could have no access to the temple. They couldn't even step into Jerusalem. It was more than just death, it was death before you were actually dead. It was a living death, cut off from society, not feeling the touch of another human for years and years and years. It couldn't get any worse. And this man had assumed that God had cursed him because of some sin that he had committed. And consequently, he approached Jesus, knowing Jesus's ability, but not understanding Jesus's heart. He said, I know you can do this, but I'm not sure you want to heal me. I think you're mad at me. I think you gave me this. Maybe this is a curse that I'm living under. Have you ever prayed to God unsure if God wants to heal you, if he wants to answer your prayers? Have you ever felt so much shame from your sin and thought that God was punishing you, that maybe you deserve this pain? And so we live with it, thinking, this is the bed I made, and now I'm just going to sleep in it. But how does Jesus respond to if you're willing faith? He says, I am willing. I do want to heal you. And then Jesus tells him not to advertise this healing, but go to the priest to be inspected and to be declared clean. And here's, this, here's an amazing thing about the, script, the Bible. Tucked away in the Old Testament book of Leviticus was chapter 14 that set down the process by which the priest could declare a cured leper clean. And all of those years, Leviticus 14 was a sleeper text. It lay untouched and unused because nobody had needed to use this text until this day no leper had been cleansed but on this day this priest would have the unique opportunity to, de- to open up leviticus 14 and declare a man clean from leprosy a chapter that had never needed to be used was suddenly being used it's as if god placed that chapter in the bible knowing that one day his son would come and put it to use They're going to need this when this leper is clean. Let's put it in there. Number 14, Moses. So how does Jesus respond to if you can and if you're willing faith? He says, I can heal you, and I want to heal you. I'm willing. And let's talk about the third level of faith. This is a faith that shocked Jesus. This is authority faith. In Matthew chapter 8, just stay in that chapter. It's the very next verse. The faith of the centurion, this is expectant faith or authority faith. Starting at verse five, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Great question. You want me to come with you? What if your? What would your reaction be? Yeah, of course I want you to come with me. I mean, I get phone calls from everybody in our church. Pastor, can you come to the hospital? Can you come to the house? Can you like? And, and people from, all, from our church, they they go visit people in the hospital, and that's not a bad thing. I'm saying that, that's what we expect, right? We want to be laid. We want the hands to be laid on us, and that's 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 what we expect. He says, "You want me to come with you and heal him?" And the centurion replied, "Lord." I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That's kind of a blow to the Hebrews there. Come on, guys. This Roman is showing you up. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment moment there's only two instances in the bible where jesus is amazed the first one is here and jesus is amazed at the centurion's face at his faith the second place where jesus is amazed is in mark chapter six where jesus goes to his hometown and he's amazed at all the people's lack of faith faith is the only thing that amazes jesus The fullness of it or the lack of it? Wow, you have a ton of faith. I'm amazed. Man, I'm amazed you don't have so much faith. What's going on? I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to be impressed by my faith. What made this man's faith so impressive? The centurion spoke to Jesus about authority. And when a person has authority, he can give a command and know for certain that it's going to be carried out. If you have authority, this Roman said, listen, if I give my servant a command, it's already done. I forget about it because I know they're going to carry it out. When I speak the word out of my mouth, the task is done. He said, I'm a man under authority, and if I can do that, Jesus, you have all the authority. And if you speak a word, it's done. It's, it's finished. All earthly rulers, presidents, kings, prime ministers, they have limited authority and limited resources. But Jesus, on the other hand, claimed after his resurrection that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. See, the universe was created when God said the word. He just spoke a word and the earth came into existence. And Jesus has that same authority when he speaks. He speaks a word, and it comes into existence. There's nothing to stop his words from being fulfilled. In Isaiah 55, verse 10, it says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. But, I will, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I have sent it. He says, when I speak it, it's done. When I give a word, when I give you a promise, when you read a promise in scripture, it's done. I've spoken it into existence. And what impressed Jesus was that the centurion had absolute confidence that if Jesus says the word, it's done. He had expectant authority faith and this chapter continues to describe jesus's healing of peter's mother-in-law and at the end of this scripture he quotes from isaiah 53 he says in isaiah 53 verse 4 it says surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by god stricken by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. He spoke it. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. But somehow, this centurion knew that Jesus had the authority, and he needed only to say the word. But notice in all of these miracles, Jesus responds to every level of faith. He isn't amazed by them all. But he responds to them all because of his overwhelming goodness. And you might have, if you can, or if you're willing faith today. But Jesus is so patient and loving when our faith is weak. But here's the thing. God wants you to know this morning how powerful and effective your prayers can be when you have faith like the Roman. If we all understood, like this Roman did, the power of God's word, the power of his promises spoken in our life, it will protect you like a shield. It will guard you. And not only that, it is an offensive. Uh, uh, Andy was telling me last week, you know, Andy's been uh, uh, in law enforcement and he's, he's uh, I'm pointing at Kieran because it's his dad over there. Andy's a military guy. He says he's, he's held a riot shield before. And he says a riot shield is not just for protecting you. It is aggressive. It it is for it is for moving things forward, for pushing things along. Faith does the same thing. Faith is not just a defense, but it is an offensive, ground taking tool. That when you believe what God says is true, when you believe His word is true, you begin to take ground for the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about faith versus belief. Faith is not belief without proof or belief despite the evidence like a lot of people think like you just have faith but there's no proof you believe in something but that you can't see God you can't hear him or yada 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 you just believe despite the evidence that is not what faith is and we get this idea of faith from uh, from the movie Indiana Jones the last crusade right where he's in the temple He's going after the Holy Grail, and he's reading from his notebook, and it says you have to take a leap of faith. And he sees this big chasm between him and the other side, and there's no bridge that he can see. And he just thinks, okay, I don't have any proof. I don't have any evidence. I'm just going to jump out into the void. And thankfully, there's a bridge under his feet, right? It catches him, and he goes, and he finds the Holy Grail. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen that movie already, don't worry about it. But that is not what faith is. The definition of faith comes straight out of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. See, faith for Indiana Jones would be knowing for a fact that there was an invisible bridge under him, not hoping that it was there, right? And here's a cool thing. The Greek word for faith in the New Testament is pistis. And it means a holy conviction of the truth. And pistis is the root word... For belief, Pistuo, which is translated belief. And it appears as though that faith has kind of these these two levels to it. The first level would be to acknowledge that something is true, right? I acknowledge that the rope is there. I believe there's somebody at the other end of the rope. I believe that they want to help me. It's to acknowledge that something is true. One could say that they believe in God's existence, but that knowledge alone doesn't make a difference in a person's life unless it changes how they interact with God. Unless they grab the rope. You've got to grab the rope. Reach out and take hold of the rope. It's not enough to just believe in the existence of God, but you begin to orient your life in such a way that says, God, I believe your, your word is true. I believe that you're in my life. I believe that you're in my heart. So I'm going to start living in the way that you want me to. I'm going to start taking hold of that rope. James 2 confirms these two levels of belief by equating true faith with action or deeds. He says that even demons operate with this first level of belief because they believe that there's a God. In James chapter 2, what the demons have not done is they haven't entrusted themselves to God in a manner that guides the way that they live and treat others according to God's command. James two seventeen says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You have demon-level faith. James goes on to state that you cannot have true faith. You cannot truly believe in God unless you reposition your life to obey God's commands and entrust yourself to him. That's what grabbing the rope looks like. And he used Abraham as an example and said that he entrusted his future to God when he offered Isaac on the altar. I don't know what you're doing, but you promised me that my descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. I don't know what this is about, but I know your word is true. So I'm going to take action. And thankfully, God intervened, right? Abraham didn't sacrifice his son on the altar. He provided a different sacrifice. He was testing Abraham in that moment. But faith says, I believe that your words are true, so now I'm going to reposition my life according to that truth, and I'm going to ignore the lies and allow you to kill the doubt. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we grab hold of the rope? When we pray, how do we expect God to move like the Roman centurion expected God to move? I want to talk just for the last few minutes here of the difference between praying with problem removal and praying with promise application. Often when we pray, it's in response to an obstacle or a crisis. And this isn't a bad thing. We should always take our worries to God. right? We take our anxiety to God. We take our troubles to God. We come to him because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. But our prayers are often centered around the removal of a problem, right? God, take away this sickness. Remove this obstacle. God, help me get out of debt. Remove this obstacle. God, show my wife that I am right and she is wrong. Remove the obstacle, God. Uh Uh-oh. See, constantly praying for God to remove your problems is like playing whack-a-mole. You, you get rid of one problem, but there's always going to be another problem. Because we live, in a light, we live in a world that is imperfect and incomplete, and there will always be more problems. <coughs> and instead of trying to, to pray for problem removal, we need to learn how to pray with promise application. Do you know the difference? Let me tell you the difference. Instead of saying, God, if you're willing, if you want to, if you can, could you take away this sickness? Could you remove this obstacle from my life? We, we pray this promise application. God, Scripture says in Psalms 107, it says, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word, and he healed them. He rescued them from the grave. God, your word says in James five sixteen to confess our sins to one another so that we could be healed and that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. God, you said in your word that if I ask for it, I can receive it. You said in your word that you desire my wholeness. You desire my healing, that you are a good God and you love me. So, Father, I just claim that promise over my life right now. I take authority over the sickness in my life, and I speak the promises of God into my body right now. I speak the promises of Scripture into my life right now, and help me to live like this for the rest of my life, fully aware of what you've said to me. In your word, through others speaking to me, Instead of praying, Lord, help me with my finances. Would you get me out of debt? Which is not a bad thing to pray. We could say, God, Scripture says in Proverbs that a generous man will be blessed and diligent hands bring wealth. So I'm going to faithfully steward the money that I do have and be wise and generous with it. And in Malachi 4, God, you told me to test you in this area. Did you know it's the only place in Scripture where God asks us to test him? He asks us to test him with our finances, of all things. He says, says, give 10% to me, give 10% back to me, and see that I don't return it to you a hundredfold. God, your word says this, so I'm going to test you in this area, and I'm going to believe in in your word. And we begin to pray promise application into our lives, not to remove a problem temporarily, but to begin to become a person who truly believes that God is true to his word at all times. And you know what God does is sometimes the answer is yes, immediately. Bam, you see a miracle. Somebody's healed immediately or, or, or the answer is solved immediately. The answer is yes. And other times the answer is, wait, I've got something for you. Just wait. And sometimes the answer is no. When we ask God about a direction or decision for our life or or we're, or, we're in, in prayer and God gives us, he responds in the negative way. Like, oh, I don't have this for you. I remember this has happened to me in my life. Or God God, I see myself going in this direction. This is kind of what I, want to, what I want to do with my life. Should I move here? Should I go here? And God says, no, I don't want to do that. And oftentimes when we come to these moments in life, you know, the scripture says to rejoice in the midst of trials. And I believe it's because this, because, because every time we come to a moment with God where we pray and we're not seeing a breakthrough, it's an opportunity for us to look inward and say, okay, God, what is it that you want to refine in me in order to reach this breakthrough? There might be sin in your life that God is saying, I want to point this out to you. I want, to, I want you to find freedom inwardly. I want you to get through this sin. I want to cleanse you. I want to refine you so that you can move forward. And we come into these moments of prayer where God says, hold on a second. Before I answer you in the way that you want me to answer you, I got some things that I want to do in you. And so praying with promise application allows us, it it puts us in a position where we say, God, your word is true, and I'm willing to go through whatever you want me to go through in order to get to where you need me to be, but I'm going to believe for my family's salvation. I'm going to believe for my wholeness and my healing. I'm going to believe for my finances. I'm going to believe for the life that you want for me. Not, not, a, not a prosperity gospel life. That's not what I'm preaching here this morning. But our Father is good. And he wants his children to experience his wholeness and his blessing and his healing. Jesus said that he only did what he saw his father do. And I'm going to invite Mary to come up as we close here. But Jesus said that he, he saw, that he did only what he saw his father doing, which means this. Which means that every miracle that Jesus performed was an amen to the father's promise. It had already been done in, in the heavens, and Jesus simply spoke the words of faith in what God had already promised Jesus looked and said, Father, I see that you're healing this person. Now I'm just going to come and say amen to that. I'm going to apply the promise to this situation. When we live and we pray with promise application, it will change your life. It will transform the way that you interact with God because you no longer are the groveling sinner that comes to God and say, God, I don't know if you love me. I'm not sure I'm worthy. I don't know if you can. But when we pray with promise application, we come to a position. We say, God, you said that I'm your son. I'm your daughter. That you love me. That you gave the authority that you gave Jesus. You gave it to me in the whole, through the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to apply that promise in my life today. We interact with people differently when we pray like that. When we interact, when we pray with God, it changes the way that we interact with Him. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the ministry teams to come forward. Some of you need a breakthrough in your life. And you know, I believe that that some of you have been in the church so long. Hear me, church. Some of you have been in the church so long. And and you have prayed in such a way that was like, God, if it's your will, if it's your will, would you do this? Or God, could you could you please do this for me? And I believe I don't believe that's how God wants us to pray. I believe that we're supposed to align ourselves with our wi- with His will, absolutely. But I believe that we're supposed to look to Scripture and look to the promises of God as we pray into the lives of people and we pray into our lives, we apply the promises of God directly to our lives and we believe what he's already said. So if you have sickness in your body and maybe for years you've had people lay hands on you and say, God, if it's your will or if you can, would you take this away? But I encourage you this morning to come and these these. This ministry team up here, they want to pray promise application over you and declare God's freedom over you. So if it's sickness in your body, if it's breakthrough in a relationship, whatever it is, I want to ask you to come forward and receive prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Father, right now we come to you as your sons and your daughters. You are the children of promise who have received an inheritance through your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that right now you would begin to show us the promises, what you've already spoken over us. And that our faith would look like believing that what you've already said is true and is already done. Help us to take hold of that rope today, to take action. And if there's something in our hearts, if there's unforgiveness towards someone that we're harboring, Unforgiveness is like a cancer. If there's unforgiveness in our life that we need to get rid of, Lord, show that to us. Convict us of that. Scripture says that when you go to make an offering to the Lord and you go to pre- present something to the Lord and you have something against another person, the Bible says to leave whatever you brought to the altar, leave it at the altar and go fix that with that person. Ask for forgiveness. Go reconcile with that person and then come back and offer your offering to the Lord. It is that important. So God, I pray for any hearts in this in this room that are maybe, God, stuck in bitterness and stuck in, in, in unforgiveness, and, and we don't doubt that there was pain, we don't doubt that there was hurt, but bring healing to our hearts today, Jesus, and help us move in forgiveness with those who have wronged us. Maybe you're stuck in addiction today, and God wants to bring you out of that addiction, and to apply the promise of the word to that place in your life. If that's you, come forward for prayer as well. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are good. We pray for breakthrough today. We pray for freedom today. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen.